The 920 KBEC Podcast Network is presented by the Slow County Real Estate Podcast with House Swayze. Up-to-date information on the local real estate market on your time. New episodes weekly at the podcast link at 920kvec.com and wherever you get your podcasts. California DRE 01111911. KVC News Talk time is 4.07 on this Friday, January 19th. No, it's Thursday. Why am I saying Friday? Hold on just a second. I'm screwed up already. It's Thursday, January 19th, 2023. I'm Dave Congleton. Is that David Crosby news that's throwing me? Anyway, good to be with you. Tomorrow is Friday. Tomorrow's pie day, which means we will be enjoying the raspberry rhubarb pie from Lynn's. We'll have our Friday night open line. And also Cal Poly professor Sarah Bridger will explain this upcoming transformation at Cal Poly from the quarter to the semester system and her reservations about that. It is the Dave Congleton Show, always your hometown radio talk show. Always a pleasure to spend time with travel journalist Tom Wilmer. Go to his website at thomaswilmer, W-I-L-M-E-R.com. He's the host of Journeys of Discovery. You can catch the podcast at kcbx.org, also on his website. Uh, we're happy to see that he's in town long enough to come by and say, hi, Tom, how are you? I'm doing good, yeah. So much I want to ask you. So I want to start, but we're talking about the airport. Yeah. What Having that new slow airport, mm-hmm. what difference has that made for you? Because it's, you're on like 56 trips a year. It's a major game changer. It used to be seven, eight years ago, you had to fly to Phoenix typically and then go to Denver or Chicago and then to your third up. Now I go direct San Luis Obispo to Denver typically or from more north to Chicago, and then second hop, I'm there. So it's cutting my travel time sometimes in half. How often are you traveling these days? Statistically, I think this year I flew 55 flights on United. So probably an average of every couple of weeks or so. They must love you. Here yeah, comes well, Tom. Yeah. Here comes Tom. Yeah. Well, I, I love it because you rack up the status like I'm in the 1K level. So you get Space A upgrade to first class. So about half the time I get upgraded, which mm-hmm. is very nice, especially back in COVID days because you had more space around you. Now, you call yourself a travel journalist. What's the difference between a travel journalist and a travel writer? Wow. Well, I think for me, because I do video, I do audio, I do print, you know, so that would be more of a journalist, I guess. Yeah. Well, it's also um, the traditional idea of a travel writer is, oh, here's where you need to stay, yeah. and here's where you need to eat, mm-hmm. and this is what you need to experience. You don't do that. Well, I, I do, but it's kind of turning it around. It's yeah. not about me. If you listen to any of my shows, it's about getting you to open up and talk. Yeah. You know, it's not about me telling you anything. But you're also kind of reporting on the land. I mean, you're talking about whiskey in Tennessee and this billionaire in Missouri mm-hmm. and the housing crisis and how it was solved in rural Indiana. Yeah, a lot of economic development stuff by default just because it's fascinating to me. So to me, you really are more of a journalist than a travel writer. Yeah, very much so. Right. Yeah. But you seem to have an affinity for the Midwest. You spend a lot of time there. I do. 
and I like it. I like it a lot. You know, I love Wisconsin. I love Michigan. I've been. I have over a hundred and fifty published shows just about Tennessee alone. So, and I'm, I scratched my head at that because I grew up in the Midwest uh-huh. and I came here. Right. And you couldn't get me to go back to the Midwest. Yeah, but I get to come home. Lovely so. people. Mm-hmm. Great place to grow up. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's really an important element. Is you know the, the one of the jokes is Minnesota nice, you know people yeah. in the, people in the Midwest are just wonderfully nice people. They well, they it, literally will give you the shirt off their back. But you know why? It's because of the weather. Oh yeah, because the the harsh winter storms. Yep. You need you cannot not talk to your neighbor mm-hmm. because you're going to get the tornado or the snowstorm, and you've got you've got to depend on your neighbor to get you through that challenge. It's well, just the nature of the beast. Well, there's another dynamic, is that there was some herd thinning when people immigrants came to the Midwest. If you weren't a strong survivor with those skills, you froze it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Which is why I moved to California. Yep. Oh, mm. yeah. Well, I, I'm cold here now. I'm going, man. Other than the Tennessee adventures, mm-hmm. how do you find your stories? A lot of times people will contact me. You know, hey, would you like to go to uh, Missouri, you know, and check out economic development stuff there? And I'm, I'm just such a sucker out of curiosity to discover different places and how they operate that. Um, a lot of times I don't know what I'm going to find, and I don't want to know too much. I want to kind of come with a blank slate and see what I see. I'm reminded of the CBS News reporter. I don't think he still does it. He would travel from town to town, and he'd find a phone book, and he would pick a name at random. Oh. And he would call that person mm-hmm. because I think it was everybody has a story. Right. And the premise was he called, no matter who he called, somebody had an interesting story to tell. Well, that's all gone because we don't have phone books anymore. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. How would you do it now? I know. Uh, Tom Wilmer on this broadcast. ThomasWilmer.com is his website. So you mentioned Missouri. Let's start with Augusta, Missouri and the billionaire. Yeah, great story. So the town of Augusta kind of got settled mid-1800s. A lot of German settlers. Located for us, please. About 40 miles west of uh, St. Louis. Okay. So it's an easy drive. I mean, it's incredible. There are people that commute into St. Louis from Augusta. Hmm. But this little town had like 650 residents. Typical house was 1860s or whatever. And it was kind of a dying town. And there was a local guy, Mr. Hoffman, who was born and raised a few miles away in Washington, Missouri, and he became a billionaire, literal, literal billionaire, but he never lost his roots. He's probably 70 or so now, and he's returned to his old stomping grounds, and he, when I was there, he had invested $150 million into renovating old historic businesses and houses in Augusta alone. How did he make his billion? He was became like one of the largest headhunters in the world. And then he segued into real estate. And he's one of the biggest realtor people in Florida. And but what's really cool about him, I went to dinner with him and you would it's like talking to a local farmer, you know, he just 
the neatest down-to-earth guy and his wife that they got married. They were high school sweethearts, been together their whole lives. Just really cool. He has purchased four or five wineries there. And this is another interesting thing about Herman and Augusta and that area. Historically, that's the birthplace of American viticulture. viticulture. Really? You you have AVAs, yeah. American Viticultural Area. Do you know where the first and the oldest AVA in America is? I'm about to find out. Yeah, in Augusta, Missouri. I had no idea. There was, uh, I sent you a link, there's like Stonehouse, I think it is, winery there. Been going since 1840. So around, I think, the 1850s, don't quote me on it, France had an epidemic in their wine-growing industry, that phylloxera that attacked the roots and was killing all their vines. Well, this Geekasaur guy in Missouri realized that their rootstock was immune to phylloxera. So they sent millions of little roots back to France, and they're the ones that saved the French wine industry. So when we started AVAs in America, the number one and the oldest AVA is Augusta, Missouri, not Napa. And so the guy that I was talking about, he eventually migrated out to Napa and is the one that founded the Napa wine growing area. So the guy in Napa came from Augusta. Came from Augusta, Missouri. Yeah, it's just a fascinating story and blew me away that I had, like you, no clue that that is the roots of American viticulture. There are wineries there in that region, in those counties, that have been going since the 1840s, 1850s. How's the wine? It's really good. One of the problems, <laughs> even like in Virginia or Wisconsin or whatever, Midwesterners, as you know, have a propensity for sweet wines. Yeah, yeah. In Wisconsin, it's the cherry capital of the world. And so they make this awesome cherry wine. Cherry is pretty tart. So they pour in quart of sugar (laughs) into the the wine. So for us, you know, it's gag me with a spoon wine. But for Midwesterners, they love it because that's what they're used to. I interviewed the guy in, in Virginia, had the oldest winery in the state of Virginia. And I said, what's your favorite wine? And he went, beer. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I go, I go, why? And he said, because I don't like the wine we make. Our clientele likes a sweet wine, and I don't like a sweet wine. I don't like sweet wine either. So part of it is what the consumer preference is. You know, that's what dictates the marketplace. But the Missouri wine and wine makers and whatnot, the one I interviewed – uh, I think it's Stonehouse. He's from South Africa. And so they've brought a real international level of winemaking to Missouri. So today you can get a wine that truly will stand up head-to-head with with Livermore wine or Lodi wine or Napa wine. Funny, I've never been in a restaurant where on the wine list they feature wine from Missouri. I know. Well, the winemaker, wow. the winemaker from... South Africa, he came out and did some internship in Napa, and somebody invited him to come to Missouri. And he goes, you guys make wine there? He didn't even know it existed. And yet, like I said, 
That's the roots of American American. America's viticultural industry. Fascinating. Tom Wilmer on this broadcast, travel journalist extraordinaire. Check out his website at Thomas Wilmer, W-I-L-M-E-R.com. More stories still to come. We're live. We're local. This is Hometown Radio. Well, it's a marvelous night for a moon dance with the stars up above in your eyes. A fantabulous night to make romance Need the cover of October's sky Always good to be in conversation with travel journalist Tom Wilmer. He travels the country. You go overseas, too. You've been overseas a lot. So. But you have a particular affection for domestic travel, particularly the Midwest. By, by the way, just a side note, what's air, airline travel like these days? Are we back to normal? Did you get caught in the recent mess? Well, one mess. I went up to Seattle a few days before Christmas and flew out, and 24 hours later, everything shut down. So uh, I got under the radar on that one. Hmm. Is there travel better these days, aside from that mess? I think we're just kind of back to where we were. You know, lots of people traveling, lots of lines, wherever you go. Hmm. But, yeah, pretty smooth. Uh, Talk about the FDR yacht up in Oakland. I didn't know this story either. In Oakland, California... FDR's presidential yacht, uh, the, well, he had two. He had a wooden one, the Sequoia, that he hated. His wife was fearful of fire because she was in a boat that burnt Eleanor. And so he purloined a Coast Guard cutter and turned it into the presidential yacht. And that's in Oakland, California. So Oakland invited me up to... Why is it in Oakland, of all the places? Just ended up there? Long story. After FDR, it went back to Coast Guard for a while. It wound up being sold. It went to the Caribbean, uh, kind of a ferry service, and then became a drug boat, a smuggler. Hmm. And the FDA uh, captured it, and they tied it up on Treasure Island, and nobody was paying any attention, and it sunk. And so a bunch of guys, maritime guys from Oakland, raised it and brought it over to the East Bay and spent nine years and millions of dollars restoring it. Um, And it's back to pristine condition, and it's open for tours. They go on bay cruises that are really cool. So who actually owns it? It's a a non-profit, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's really cool. Right, you know where Jack London Square is? Yeah. Right to the right, when you're facing the water, there it is. It's really cool. So you you got to go on, on the yacht? Not only that, the city of Oakland invited me up. I said I'd like to do a story about the presidential yacht, and they said, okay, we're setting you up to meet and interview FDR's grandson, who's the new CEO of the nonprofit. So I spent the day with FDR's grandson on board the yacht. And what was your takeaway? Uh, well, I don't know. <laughs> on what level? Well, just uh, did you learn anything about FDR that you didn't well, know he, already? He was so young that he doesn't have much recollection of FDR, but very close and intimate memories of Eleanor. Hmm. And so he would tell stories about that. That's right. She lived to like 1962. A long time, yeah. They don't have presidential yachts anymore. 
I know Nixon had one, mm-hmm. and then I'm not sure Ford had one. Ford or Carter were the ones to get rid of it. Uh huh. Interesting. So anyway, so if you go to Oakland, check it out. Now, do they actually take you around the harbor, or they, is it just you have to sign up ahead of time? I went on a couple cruises. We went under the Golden Gate Bridge. We went across the bay to San Francisco along Treasure. Treasure Island, Angel Island, and back. So they're really they do be pre-COVID. I know they did wine cruises and whatnot. A friend of mine is a law professor at UC Berkeley, and she's on the Women's Commission for the United Nations, and she chartered the whole yacht to take all the United Nations women San Francisco chapter out on the bay. So what's the name of the boat? Google it. I'm just okay. I'm brain dead because of getting okay. over. <laughs> But it's up in Oakland, yep. right there at Jack London Square. Yeah. If, if your assistant's out of his helicopter, we can have him look it up. No, I can look it up. Okay. He's busy. Uh, Tom Wilmer is on this broadcast. Where haven't you gone? Because I want to hear more stories after the news break. But before the news break, where haven't you gone in the Midwest that you want to go to? Well, Ohio. Clueless. Don't know anything about it. And I've spent a lot of time up in the Canadian Maritimes, in New Brunswick, in that area, but never up to the far northeast of America. But, like New England? Yeah. You've never been to New England? Not, not And you're a travel journalist. I know. Well, a lot of places to go, David. You know, for 10 years I covered the Caribbean, so that's all I would do was go down there. And that's part of the reason why I started covering America, because 25 years of covering international, I went, you know, I want to explore our own country and so i kind of shifted my focus so i've been to all 50 states well you beat me but uh, some of the states like in delaware i was there for like a half hour Mm because i was just driving through but now that i have been to a lot of these places i would i would love to go back to maine Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. oh i was so blown away by the beauty of maine i had no idea what to expect and affordable real estate in a lot of those places yeah, but then you have to live there during the winter I time. Oh, deal breaker, man. For me, it is. Yeah. All right, let us do this. Let us uh, go check in with California Headline News and ABC Radio News. Craig will update us with time saver traffic and weather together. We will continue our conversation with Mr. Tom Wilmer and find out more about places he has been lately. Meanwhile, you can go to his website, thomaswilmer.com. That's W-I-L-M-E-R. He is the host of Journeys of Discovery, an award-winning podcast. You can also catch him locally right here on KCBX Public Radio. I'm Dave Congleton. This is Hometown Radio for the Central Coast. We'll be back. Glad to have you with us on Hometown Radio. Always good to be in conversation with travel journalist Tom Wilmer. If you want to find his podcast, Google Journeys of Discovery with Tom Wilmer. you got to add that, right? Yep. You just can't. What happens if I just put in Journeys of Discovery? There's a women's group, travel group, and you'll get their website. All right, so go, go the whole length. Journeys of Discovery with Tom Wilmer. By the way, 
The FDR yacht in Oakland is the USS Potomac. Well, you know, now, thanks to you, I'm going to go. I'm going to do, go cool. do this. Well, I'll give you uh, Ford Roosevelt's email. All right, I'll take it. Yeah, but so I can I can go on the cruise. It looks like they have two cruises a day. Okay, and where does it go? It goes all around the bay. Out to, some of them go out to the Golden Gate Bridge, you know, and under it, Bay Bridge, uh, Angel Island, Alcatraz. It's See, really, really well, cool. these are all places I, I've never been under the bridge. Mm-hmm. I've never been by Alcatraz. I've never been by Angel Island. I've wanted to do all these. You need to go over to Tiburon. I just spent a week there and, and took the ferry out to Angel Island. And it was a sunny day. It had just rained the day before, and nobody was on the island. It was cool. That's on my bucket list. Yeah, do it. But you took it out of Tiburon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Tiburon Ferry. Mm-hmm. Wait, is, is the yacht restored so that it looks like what it did under Roosevelt? They went to huge lengths. They got archival photos, and they made everything exact. As if he just walked out of the room. I'm going. All cool. right. Here's Amy up in Bradley. Hey, Amy. Hey, I've taken that cruise. Oh, oh you, it's you, a cool oh. boat. It's a cool boat. How'd you it fi- really is. How'd you find and out? It's immaculate. How'd you find it out? How'd you find really out about? Nice. It? How'd you find out about it, Amy? We were at Jack London Square. And we saw this line, and we just got in it. <laughs> Bought our tickets and got in the line, and it was so. It was the most perfect day because none of us even had a jacket. And cruising around, it was the most perfect weather. My 25-year-old son was two years old, and he pushed the button that lets the the uh, anchor out. Yeah. And it made a lot of rocket. Ah! And then the guys, because it's all old Navy guys or something, and the guy goes, oh, we better fix that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a beautiful boat. Really nice. And you went under and the, the engine room. You went under we the bridge? Went, we did. We went under the bridge and circled Alcatraz and hit all the hot spots. It was wonderful. All right, that you've sold it. I'm going. <laughs> it's worth it. Bye. All right, Amy, thank you. Who says you don't learn anything from listening to the show? I've never heard about this. And now you're going. No, no I'm definitely going to go. I will let you know. Tom Wilmer is here. Uh, Google Journeys of Discovery with Tom Wilmer to find out more about all the podcasts, the award-winning podcasts. So I lived in Indiana for three years, and you have multiple stories in Indiana. What have I missed? Let's talk about the, the town in Indiana that solved its housing crisis. Oh, my gosh. French Lick. Oh, uh, Larry Bird. Yes, See? the home of Larry Bird. That's how much sports I know. That's so, all I know. Like 1906, this developer guy built the world's largest free-span dome structure that remained the largest in the world until the Houston Astrodome. And it was a hotel, which still exists. It was abandoned for a while, but they fully restored it. One of the problems in French Lick, like a lot of America, has to do with workforce housing. Yeah. They have people want to come to work there, but they can't find a place to live or they can't find affordable housing. So what the nonprofit entities did there is they got corporations to invest, to buy land. And then like the French like casino people, they use their own workers to build these houses. And then the nonprofit, the city or whatever, acted as the realtor. So they didn't even need a real estate license. So they're building four-bedroom, be- four two-bath houses 
that are selling for 155 to 170,000. And that's how they're able to provide housing for their workers. It's really cool. Well, could something like that be done here? Yeah, mm-hmm. it could be done anywhere. <coughs> Excuse me. And that's one of the disconnects that I've learned traveling around America. I spent a lot of time in Missouri, as you know, and I went to the Ozarks, and I went to the College of the Ozarks. I've heard of it. It's a private school. Every kid that goes to the College of the Ozarks goes to that school without any student loans. The school won't even accept any federal loans for their kids. How they do it is every kid there has to volunteer, like, I don't know, a couple hours a week or whatever, and then 40 hours in the summer in Typically, let's say you want to be a marketing major, well, you work in the public relations department. And so that covers your tuition, that along with the benefactors from their endowment. So every kid that goes to the College of the Ozarks graduates debt-free. So that's, you know, the last seven years, you read about these student loan crises. And here's this college that figured out a simple way to provide for their kids without ever having a loan. Well, what's your student population? Is it a small college? Yeah, yeah. small private school. But that's, I think, besides the point. You know, you could scale it up or scale it down. But the point is there are people in America that are solving problems, just doing it, like the workforce housing people in French Lick, Indiana. They found a way to provide affordable housing for their workers. And the College of the Ozarks. Yeah. Student debt. Yep. And now you also found Amish people in Indiana. Where have they been hiding? Yeah, just under the radar. I guess. Yeah. Well, you have the Mennonites that are the the more liberal branch, you know, and they can have electricity and whatnot. (laughs) (laughs) And so they are just some of the hardest working people in America. I I don't know the stats, but they are one of the major manufacturers of mobile homes in America, in these Shipshawana, Indiana. And it's just fascinating. How on earth did you come across this story? Well, I wanted to go to Notre Dame. And so I was in that area of Indiana, and right nearby was the town of Shipshawana. And um, that's how I stumbled upon it. So back on French Lick, how much of French Lick is a shrine to Larry Bird? Mm, it's just kind of there. You know, there would be signage and a little statue and whatnot, but it's not viral. I mean, like in Tulsa, everything, when I was lived there, mm-hmm. everything was named for Will Rogers. Right. Yeah, not to that degree. Hmm. Yeah. What did you think of Notre Dame? I love Notre Dame. I was really surprised. One of the things that I was most surprised about was what what do you think the total student population is? How many kids go there? I've been on the campus, and what I remember oh. about the campus is the dome. Yeah, After uh, they're called domes. That's their nickname. Uh, I'm gonna guess thirty thousand. Eight thousand seven hundred, I think. <laughs> it's so much smaller than you'd ever imagine. Yeah, uh, I, I, all I remember about the campus is the dome. Yep. Yeah. It's just and and the football stadium. Yeah. Those are the two things you know about the campus. It's only eight thousand. Really? 
Yeah, Inter- interesting about the stadium is that you here you have these mega stadiums around America that sit empty for two-thirds of the year. Well, they, like Green Bay Packers and whatnot, have found a way to make it a multifunctional facility. They have all kinds of buildings encircling the stadium. So there's something going on there at that stadium almost every day of the year. Even during the wintertime? Yeah. Yeah, well, it's in, you know, they're indoor spaces. What made you want to go to Notre Dame? What was the story there? I've just known so many people that went there and heard so much about it. You just kind of, you want to go to the mothership. And then I've done a lot of stories with Green Bay, Wisconsin, and the Green Bay Packers. Curly Lambeau, he founded the Green Bay Packers. Mm -hmm. He was a student at Notre Dame, Mm. and he got sick, and he had to go home. And then he, for some reason, couldn't afford to go back. So he started his little football team. He was a meat packer. And that's why they're called the Green Bay Packers. The original colors of the Green Bay Packers were the colors of Notre Dame. That's what a proud, you know, former student he was of Notre Dame. See, I didn't know any of this before. You have a certain affinity for Wisconsin. You've been to all the islands off the east? No, that's no way up uh, the the Apostle Islands and whatnot. Aren't there those islands right off the coast of Wisconsin? Well, I've been to, I went in February a couple years ago on an icebreaker ferry boat ride to Washington Island, which at one point in more of the pioneer days was one of the greatest, largest populations of Icelandic people in America. But you want to talk about cold. Well, here's the thing. is I grew up in Chicago, and I never knew. And I've been to Wisconsin plenty of times. Mm-hmm. Never knew about those islands. Yeah. It's really cool. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, Tom Wilmer on this broadcast. Travel journalist extraordinaire. Google Journeys of Discovery with Tom Wilmer to find out more about his award-winning podcast. We're just catching up on places he has been of late. We'll come back for a final segment on AM 920, FM 96.5 News Talk, KVEC. Tom Wilmer and I just catching up during the break because I lived, my first teaching job was in Moorhead, Minnesota, and you're from Minnesota originally. Right. Yeah. And I lived in Fargo uh, when Dave Hovde from KSBY is from Fargo. Oh, really? Lovely people. Mm-hmm. Lovely people. But I went back uh, 2011. We were doing this crazy tour. And I looked around like, I used to live here. <laughs> I couldn't believe I couldn't believe I used to live here. Mm-hmm. It's a just totally different world. Yeah. Lovely people. Yep. But again, it goes back to what we were saying earlier. When you're in the Midwest or the Great Plains states, mm-hmm. you've got to be a nice person yeah. because you've got to bail your neighbor out in these snowstorms. Well, one of the monikers of Minnesota, official or their tourism for a while, was Minnesota nice. Yeah. <laughs> Land of 10,000 lakes. Yep. Water so clear that you can stand on the lake and you can see the bottom. Mm-hmm. You ever make it up to the... Um, oh, boundaries. Lake, Lake of the Woods. Uh, uh, natural boundary. Right there on the Canadian border, yeah, north yeah. of Duluth. I did not make it there. Beautiful country. Yeah. Mm. 
Always more places to see and go, David. Uh, travel journalist Tom Wilmer. You can go and Google Journeys of Discovery with Tom Wilmer, W-I-L-M-E-R. So many podcasts as he takes you all over the country. Now, I, I, you went to Bristol, Virginia. I've never even heard of Bristol, Virginia. What led you there? I got invited to cover the Bristol Music Fest in September. And I said, I'll go if I can hang out and interview Roseanne Cash. among okay. So they brought me there. The interesting thing about Bristol, Virginia, the main drag going downtown, double yellow line, that's the state line. So one half of the town of Bristol is in Tennessee, and the other half is in Virginia. So if you get sick of being in Tennessee, you just go across the street and you're in Virginia or vice versa. But it's in eastern Tennessee or western Virginia, right in the heart of the Smoky Mountains. You could stay in Bristol and do a day trip to the Smoky Mountains National Park. I love Smoky Mountains. Here is Ray in Pismo Beach. Hey, Ray. Hi, Dave. Hey, Ray. Tom. Hi. Hi. So, Tom, you're touching my heart today. Let me tell you why. Yeah. Uh, I'm a member of the Potawatomi tribe out of Shipshewana, Indiana. Nice. nice. Really? I didn't know and that about you. The, yes, sir. They they named the town, of course, after Chief Shipshewana, who was the chief from about 1840 to 1850 in there, maybe even earlier. Uh, the American government came and took the chief and all the Potawatomi Indians and sent them down to Kansas and Oklahoma, so that's not their land anymore. But in the 1820s, there were some priests that came to our chief at the time, and they said, you know, we've got a new church. Uh, we, we want to build a college here called Notre Dame. And so our chief at the time, I forgot his name, he sold the land to Notre Dame. So it's literally sitting on Potawatomi land. Interesting. That's really cool. Well, I love Shipshawana and the people there are just really awesome. Yeah, and the minute- you know, I got in trouble down in there, Tom. Uh-oh. What'd you do? I used, to, I used to drive Merle Haggard's bus, which Dave, of course, knows. Yeah. And we were on tour down in there, and I didn't know it, but the speed limit's 15. <laughs> that's because that's of the buggies and the horses. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> and you touched on the Amish situation, yeah. and I, I'm riding along, and all of a sudden it goes from 50 to 15 I, what, why is that and then there's a sure as heck there was a buggy mm-hmm. and a couple of people in it and just uh, trotting along at about five ten miles an hour and you're not even supposed to go by them mm-hmm. but uh i think i did uh but anyway i, I thought that was really interesting that uh, you were in ships you want yeah no i love it i go back right anytime yeah man thanks for your time man ray thanks for checking in so Bristol, I, I, so how do they possibly govern the city if half the city is in one state and the other isn't? What, what do they have for a city council? They basically have duplicity, you know, double double everything. Really? But you know, their tourism and whatnot, they they promote the region more than one half of the town. Is this a large town? I don't know the population. It's kind of you know typical Midwest town. Not, I don't know. We have to look that one up. Hmm. Uh, now, since we're in that area, what about Tennessee whiskey? Interesting. I recently interviewed a guy, he's an attorney, and until 
the 2000 and around eight, there were basically like three or four distilleries that were legal in Tennessee. So he got the laws changed, allowing other counties and whatnot to have legal distilleries. And now in the last 10 years, I think they're up to 40 distilleries. But a really interesting thing, I went to Jack Daniels, of course, Hmm. and that county to this day is a dry county. (laughs) I mean, interesting. So one of the ways that Jack Daniels got around the dry county thing, having their tasting room and whatnot, is they got a law pass where they have these like commemorative bottles that they can sell. And then it turns out, this is really interesting, right down the street, there was a compatriot of that distillery and it was it was George Dickel. And so Dickel is a big time distillery today. Then the untold story for years was a guy named Nearest something. And he was a black slave. And he's the one that taught Jack Daniels how to make whiskey. And and so they've a black slave yeah. taught Jack Daniels how to, make, how to make whiskey. Yeah. So it's nearest something. You have to Google it again. And they've put millions into kind of rebirthing that nearest distillery. And it's open and going gangbusters now. Where are you going next? I'm going to Fredericksburg, Texas in a few weeks. And I'm going to be with the 33rd Commandant of the United States Marine Corps, who's retired, an acquaintance of mine. And he's now CEO of the Museum of the Pacific War. And he, uh, Admiral Nimitz, that's his hometown. So way back when Nimitz was growing up, they had the Nimitz Hotel. And that's where and how the museum started. And it grew out of that. The Museum for the War of the Pacific is in Texas. The Museum of the Pacific War. The I think it was General Hagee, he found one of the last surviving men-conditioned PT boats back in New Jersey. And they bought it, and they went to Chevron and said, would you guys pay for the gas if we drove it around the intercoastal and brought it to Texas, which they did. It was $80,000 gas bill to drive this PT boat from New Jersey down to Texas. But it's in Texas. Yeah, now it's inland. In Fredericksburg is about 40 miles from San Antonio. Hmm. But great. And again, German um, colony town, 1840s, 1850s. The Germanic character is to to this day super strong in Fredericksburg until World War 1 most of the common language was German in Fredericksburg and older people in the home still speak German there you spent a lot of time in Tennessee do you see much evidence of the California migration to oh, Tennessee oh yeah yeah it's viral everywhere yep and are they happy the immigrants yeah <laughs> I think so, yeah. And one reason it's business-friendly and the tax structure is a lot friendlier, the cost of real estate compared to here, you know, it's going off the charts, but relatively it's like two-for-one sale. It's pretty incredible. But it's been discovered now. Everybody's going to Nashville. Right. Everybody wants to go to Tennessee. Nashville is so popular. It's kind of like... Uh, Austin, Texas, you have the high, the freeway that goes through there. It's gridlock. 
I the younger people I know that work in the tech industry and whatnot, most of them live 30 miles outside of Nashville because they can't afford to live in town. Uh, the friends I've had here, I've got three or four friends. They don't know each other, but they've all ended up in Franklin, oh, Tennessee. I just spent uh, in December, I spent a week there around Christmas time. And they take the train from Franklin to Nashville. Mm-hmm. They don't drive. And Franklin is really interesting. In the town square, there's a giant statue to the Confederate Confederate soldiers. And yeah. 10 feet away, there's a statue to the African-American regiment in the Civil War. The town of Franklin was the site of the last major battle of the Civil War. It was done and over with in... 24 hours, and I think there were 7,500 casualties. Yes. It was really incredible. But what, one of the things I loved about Franklin is the architecture. There are houses and buildings in Franklin that go back to the 1820s. So you just, it's like going back to colonial America in many ways. My friends are all, every one of them is very happy. They're all glad that they moved. They oh, said yeah. the weather is different, yeah. but the people are friendly mm-hmm. and it's affordable and they're happy there. Well, in and out Burgers, I don't know if you read that. Yeah, they're now going east. They're, well, they're putting their head, their Tennessee headquarters in Franklin hmm. and they're going to do in and outs across the state of Tennessee. Check out Journeys of Discovery with Tom Wilmer, and you're going to get some really great podcasts and learn more great information. Tom, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Safe travels. Dave, thank you so much. All right, off we go. We've got news and traffic and weather. Mr. Dan Shadwell joins us for the 5 o'clock hour. This is Hometown Radio. The 920 KBEC Podcast Network is presented by the Slow County Real Estate Podcast with House Swayze. Up-to-date information on the local real estate market on your time. New episodes weekly at the podcast link at 920kvec.com and wherever you get your podcasts. California DRE 01111911.